Hi everyone, welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas of interest and importance to Jewish life. I'm excited to share now more explicitly that Identity Crisis is now produced and distributed in partnership between the Shalom Hartman Institute and the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, a really exciting development that we hope will help us reach more audiences and bring more people into conversation. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America. We're recording on January 15th, 2021. Many of us, I think all of us, are still reeling here in America from the Capitol insurrection and by ongoing political turmoil and uncertainty, here in America. This episode will come out just a couple of days before inauguration, and I can speak personally, that's what most people are thinking about and talking about. At the same time, nothing over the past year, including this most recent news, is separable from the specter of the pandemic, which has been hanging over all of us for nearly a year. I think one of the stories where we can see this intersection was seeing multiple members of Congress testing positive for the coronavirus after the Capitol insurrection, in part because they were crammed into close quarters with other people, some of whom other members of Congress refused to wear masks. We started this show, Identity Crisis, weirdly enough, the week that we originally went remote. That was totally a coincidence. And so even though we've tried through this show to engage a broad set of questions facing Jewish life, the pandemic has continued to be a through line. And so this week, we're actually going back to the battle against the pandemic itself with some hope on the horizon, the beginning of the vaccination process. In my own home, my wife, who's a head of a day school, by virtue of being an educator, was able to get her first shot this week in America. And my parents, thank God, got their first shot as well. As we know, the vaccination process has been fast in some places and slow in others. And as a result, it's been inviting a whole bunch of really interesting threads and angles for the Jewish community to consider in watching what's happening now and how it portends to the future. So to help untangle these threads, I'm really excited to be joined this week by two excellent journalists. Isabel Kirshner is a correspondent from the New York Times who has written a series of really terrific pieces about the vaccination process in Israel and all of its various complexities, who joins us from Jerusalem. And Ben Sales covers anti-Semitism as well as American Jewish affairs for the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, is joining us from a less interesting place, New York City. Thanks both of you for being here on Identity Crisis. Thank you. Thank you. Isabel, let's start with you. I would love for you to help us paint, principally for our American Jewish audience, a picture of this vaccination process, which is major news all over the world because of the success of what's taking place in Israel. I'm curious to know about the mood, especially since, weirdly, this vaccination process is happening at the same time as a major lockdown. The numbers are very high, but the vaccination is started. And then after that, we can get into why Israel is such a unique story right now. Well, yes, it is rather strange. We have this contradiction in our lives. Practically, one of the only reasons you can go out beyond a thousand meters from your home is to go get a vaccination. But there is light at the end of the tunnel, so it's made this lockdown very different to the others. We're hearing that, you know, the whole country or enough of the country could be vaccinated by the end of March for Israel to begin, slowly to go back to some kind of normality. So obviously that makes this lockdown and this wave much more bearable for people. They're very much hoping this will be the last one. And we are being told it will probably be the last one. Having said that, yes, the pandemic is raging outside. And we've seen consistently in the last week or two about 9,000 new infections a day in a population of 9 million. 
and the hospitals, COVID wards, full, fuller than they've ever been, serious cases on the rise. And people are very eagerly watching the early data coming out, actually, which is really fascinating to see what effect the vaccine is having, you know, at least the first dose, because most of the people who have received a vaccine so far have just received the first of the two Pfizer doses. And there are some, you know, interesting statistics beginning to come out. Two of the health funds came out this week with their very initial data gathering and research. And one found that a couple of weeks after the first dose, the infection rate had dropped by about two thirds. Another health fund found that it had dropped by about one third. So I think the discrepancy shows we're still in the early days. <laughs> it's too early to conclude very much. But it is very interesting. And in fact, one of the reasons that Netanyahu was able, we can go into this in more detail later if you want, but one of the reasons he was able to get Pfizer to bring forward deliveries when it looked like we might be running out of doses was apparently reaching an agreement on sharing data. So that's a really fascinating aspect now beyond the actual program that Israel could actually, because of the speed of the program and the size of the population, could actually become a very interesting test case for this whole thing. Isn't it fascinating, you know, that the state of Israel of all places is now once again, you know, the city on the hill that the world is watching, the single country where Pfizer is going to study all of this that transpires. If you were a conspiracy theorist, you'd say, of course it is. Of course, that's where the Jewish state is. I reminded of Mati Friedman's pieces a few years ago saying like, why is the world's attention always focused on this country? And this is actually more like a prosaic version of that story. I would love to know like why. You unpacked this a little bit in some of your Times pieces, but why do you think it is that this country has managed to generate this kind of momentum towards vaccination? I can tell you as an American, I have no idea when I'm going to get vaccinated. Right. My 84-year-old mother in England is still waiting for her first dose. So I hear you. And I feel a bit bad because I've already had one. I have to say, you know, just on your Matty Friedman point, it's never been so easy to get the health minister on the phone in this last couple of weeks. Usually you can sing, you can jump up and down, you can stand on your head and you can't get any a spokesperson at the health ministry to tell you anything. And suddenly the last couple of weeks, it's, oh yeah, whatever you need, here's the health minister. <laughs> so this is obviously a story that Israel is pleased to uh, be at the center of attention of, although of course uh, we'll get on later to some of the other less flattering sides of it. But why, why has Israel become this beacon of the vaccination campaign? There are various reasons. One, obviously, is just that it is a fairly small country, 9 million people. It's a fairly young country, age-wise. So the vaccines were never tested on 16s and under. So they're not going to get the vaccine at this stage. So if you lop off Israel's 16 and underage group, that's already... 28% of the country. So you're actually only talking really about 7 million people, which is, you know, a very manageable number. Geographically, we're a small country. Other reasons, Netanyahu, to his credit, really had foresight and made this a personal project early on. 
when other countries did not believe that we would see a vaccine before the end of 2020 and weren't really doing much about it as a result, he was on the phone with the CEO of Pfizer and Moderna. And, you know, he's been boasting about the great friendships he's built up with them as a result and their great Jewish souls. And he really got onto this early. I mean, it really was a case, according to the health minister, of being the early birds and getting in early on closing deals. Aside from that, once the vaccines started arriving here, sometimes, you know, Israel can be a bit of an infrastructural mess, as you know. <laughs> and for a startup nation, sometimes things go horribly wrong. But we do have an absolutely fantastic setup with the health system. Even though our hospitals have been rather starved of budgets for decades, and we're short of hospital beds and short of doctors' jobs, etc., etc., the health funds, we have four main health funds, and they are absolutely fantastic. They're actually a leftover of Israel's socialized medicine from the old Histadrut days, and these health funds go back decades to before the state. By law, there's a national health law. Every Israeli has to belong to one of these four funds and pay into it, but it's very affordable. And by law, these funds have to give full coverage, health coverage, to all Israeli citizens. They are also very highly digitized. We have a very centralized, digitized health system here. So keeping track of how many 65-year-olds there are in a particular area, what background illnesses they might have, how many 40-year-olds with background illnesses should be called in early. I mean, all of this is just available on the computers there. So all of these things have just really helped. Plus, logistically, when Israel needs to put on a show, do an operation, do a campaign, you know, Israel can rally. You need fridges for minus 70 degree cold chains? Fine, we'll get them. The army has a few. We'll take them from the army, you know. <laughs> you need some help? Bring in the home front from the army home front corps. People have really pulled together and it's just become an exemplary operation. Yeah, I do want to come back to both the Palestinian question, but also the political consequences of all of this. One of my favorite things that appeared in your coverage, Isabel, was when you quoted Gidon Levy, who couldn't be a more strident critic of the state of Israel and its government policy. And it felt to me a little bit like a subtweet that those of us who knew exactly why you were quoting him, where he basically throws his hands up, he's like, okay, I give credit to Netanyahu. Felt that it was like historic. I wanted to bring Ben into the conversation a little bit by opening up the other theater of where in the Jewish world we're going to have to watch the story of the vaccination or not vaccination. And that is whether or not we're going to see some resistance in parts of the Jewish community to vaccination. Ben, you wrote a piece, I think in 2019, it felt almost prophetic at this point, which was coverage of an ultra-Orthodox anti-vaccination rally. And of course, it wasn't the pandemic vaccine, but it was really a wacky story. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the nature of that resistance, whether you think that's going to map in sectors of the ultra-Orthodox community in America, maybe even in Israel, whether you think that's going to recur and what to watch for with respect to that. My mind has come back to that story again and again this year and to the measles outbreak, which is what we were talking about and covering back then. That was quite an experience sitting in a room watching an anti-vax presentation, both by ultra-Orthodox leaders and by non-Jewish anti-vaxxers who came in and capitalized on 
skepticism and doubt and conspiracy theories in the ultra-Orthodox community. You know, I spoke to ultra-Orthodox leaders at the end of last year, a few weeks ago, and they said that, first of all, the ultra-Orthodox community is facing a lot of the same challenges that Americans in general are facing in terms of there being a significant portion of the population for one reason or another, uh, be they conspiracy theories or doubts or just kind of skittishness that don't want to get vaccinated. But there are also unique factors in the ultra-Orthodox community that are contributing to this. A lot of information is passed around, not through reputable news sites, but on WhatsApp, the messaging system, and other places like that. And a lot of misinformation can spread that way. It's actually interesting because this is something that I cover when I cover anti-Semitism. A lot of conspiracy theories are spread through Facebook and through WhatsApp and Telegram. And we're actually seeing a similar phenomenon with anti-vax theories as well. So the leaders of the ultra-Orthodox community, leading rabbis and experts, are really trying to give a full-throated endorsement. But as honestly as we saw with other stuff last year, you know, with with masks burning in the street of Brooklyn, there's going to be a fringe that isn't receptive to that. And I think that the challenge is to contain that fringe and also to kind of focus on everyone else who is vaccinating and, and try to consolidate there. As to whether that can happen in Israel, I think Isabel can speak to that better than me, but I do know that virus rates and all these statistics have been particularly high in the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel, which sees a lot of the same tendencies. If we could stay in New York for one more second, do you think that a piece of the story also that will emerge, especially for ultra-Orthodox Jews in New York, is rooted in some sense that these communities have not just suffered enormously through the pandemic, but in effect, have a narrative of being disproportionately targeted and scapegoated by de Blasio, by Cuomo, that this became Supreme Court cases, such that their perception of how they are treated in the pandemic has been politicized, and therefore their own skepticism about policies that come out under a de Blasio, Cuomo, and soon-to-be Biden administration are somehow not in their own self-interest. Yeah, exactly. That's definitely a factor. And we saw that, again, in the measles outbreak from a couple of years ago, and also in any number of other policies, be it in education, where there's part of the ultra-Orthodox community that objects to having educational standards applied to their schools, or even issues regarding circumcision practices. But there's kind of this history of mistrust between local and state government, city and state government, and the community. Honestly, it's less of like a national issue. I mean, you know, Trump and the fandom he's engendered in the ultra-Orthodox community do affect this. But in general, as you said, there's been a lot of deepening distrust between de Blasio, Cuomo, and the community. This also ties in to the anti-Semitism that spiked a year ago. You know, these communities felt particularly that de Blasio wasn't taking them seriously and wasn't doing enough. And then you get to 2020, and like you said, they feel that they've been targeted for restrictions and that the government has been kind of heavy-handed in policing those violations in Brooklyn. Yeah, that definitely contributed to a sense of mistrust. You know, Haredi ultra-Orthodox leaders told me that what they'd like to see is the city and state kind of working through their institutions to try to reach people because that's how you can create trusted information pathways in the ultra-Orthodox community. Whether that's going to happen remains to be seen. And honestly, whether that's effective given the history that you talked about, also remains to be seen. Yeah, and also given the fact that when I talk to my Israeli colleagues, each of them has like a vaccination app from different 
healthcare providers and the availability of those types of technology, obviously, in the Haredi community is different. But I guess what's so interesting to me about this is that even in spite of our tendency to see ultra-Orthodoxy as ultra-Orthodoxy, whether it's in America or Israel, and of course, there are family connections and all of that, but they are actually behaving in very different ways. Isabel, you referenced this in your coverage, that there was an initial fear that especially because the social distance behaviors have not been abided the same way in the Haredi community, especially, I think there was something like a 20% infection rates in certain parts of the ultra-Orthodox community, that there was fear that ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel would also be resistant to the vaccination process. And then I think in one of your pieces you said, but that hasn't materialized. So it's just interesting to watch, in some ways, the same identities, in some sense, you know, responding really different to the political climate and to the vaccine climate. Yeah, it has been interesting. I mean, basically in Israel's ultra-Orthodox community, which, as you know, is not homogenous in any way. I mean, you have the Hasidim, you have the Lithuanians, the Sephardim, and etc. Then the extremist Jerusalem branch, the Pelagei Yerushalmi, who seem to do the opposite of what everyone else does. But basically, largely, if you're talking about the mainstream, the so-called ultra-Orthodox mainstream in Bnei Brak and the Lithuanian community, then basically what Rav Kanievsky says goes. And Rav Kanievsky who mainly speaks through his grandson because he's pretty elderly and non-comprehensible to most people. His grandson was videoed having his vaccination and said that his grandfather said everyone should get vaccinated. So there was a big sigh of relief. Now, it didn't come from nowhere. At least one of the senior public health officials here who's been advising the government on COVID and is one of the senior officials of the biggest health fund here, he personally went and debated with one of the leading rabbis there the pros and cons of a new vaccine and risks versus protection, etc., etc. And effort was put into it. I think the Israeli authorities learned a lesson because at the beginning of the outbreak, Partly because, as you say, the ultra-Orthodox access to information is different. You know, most of them are not walking around with apps on their smartphones, checking and getting Ynet alerts every minute. So a different approach was needed to get to the community and to explain and to persuade and to elucidate. And I think, you know, over the year, obviously, the authorities and the rabbis have got better at working together on that. So we're not seeing a big pushback, but we do have, for example, the other big community where we've seen very high infection rates is the Arab-Israeli community, the 20% of Israeli Palestinians with Israeli citizenship. And there have been very high hotspots of infection, and there still are some. And the vaccine centers there were largely empty of local customers for the first while. What you saw was a lot of Jewish older people from nearby towns driving in at the end of the day to take advantage of the leftover vaccines because the locals hadn't come to get them. And even now, I think the numbers are still low. I think if 70% of the 60-plus population here have been fully vaccinated. There, the numbers were 45%. And there are questions of why that is. Is it because of lack of trust in the vaccine and the government? Partly, maybe. Is it because of access problems? Partly, maybe. 
Is it because there's not been as good a public information campaign in Arabic as there has been in Hebrew? Possibly. It's probably a mixture of all three. But we're not seeing a huge rejection of the vaccination campaign. It's just slower. And Netanyahu has partly for his own political reasons and partly for part of this public information campaign has actually been visiting many Arab vaccination centres to try and persuade the population to both come for vaccine and vote for him. Hi, my name is Michal Biton and I am a scholar in residence at the Shalom Hartman Institute. Just before the election, as part of our symposium on Judaism, citizenship and democracy, nine of our faculty members, including myself, came together to record short reflections on ideas that matter to Jewish communities today. To see the series, you can go to our website, shalomhartman.org slash context. This may be an unfair question for both of you, but I'm still curious what you think about it, which is, I wonder about the long-term ramifications. I'm institutionally and personally invested in questions of peoplehood and collectivity, and whether we still see ourselves as part of the same infrastructure. And I do feel, both in Israel and in America, because of the pandemic and because of the response to the pandemic, the rise of a discourse around segregation among the Jewish people that I haven't heard in a while. My Israeli colleagues, many of whom are like on the front line of thinking about how do we construct a society around all of its tribes, saying things like, we should build a wall around Bnei Brak. And in part, it happens because if you can track in detailed ways, where's a red zone and where's a green zone, and you can see exactly where the red zones are, it leads to a kind of we should really think of ourselves as separate. And in New York, too, I wonder whether after this year, I think it was a year and change ago when there was that rally that UJA Federation created of people marching across the Brooklyn Bridge to stand in solidarity with ultra-Orthodox Jews because of anti-Semitic attacks. If they tried to do that post-pandemic, are people going to show up? And I'm suspicious that they won't, that the pandemic actually altered the ways in which we see ourselves as belonging to the same collective. Do either of you want to Share your thoughts on what you think that the long-term result of these behaviors and these orientations are going to be for our sense of collectivity on both sides of the water. I'll take that in New York. I think you're absolutely right. I was thinking about the march against anti-Semitism, and I can't believe it was only a year ago, a year and change ago. I believe it was January 5th of last year. And I don't think it would happen again now. I think that, you know, last year when that string of anti-Semitic attacks was happening, there was an intention from the non-ultra-Orthodox Jewish community in New York to try to build bridges. It's a heavy-handed metaphor, but to try to build bridges to the ultra-Orthodox community in Brooklyn. And the march, I believe, was seen as kind of the start of those efforts, not the culmination of them. And then COVID happened. And so any kind of initiative that was going to try to get off the ground and create both an immediate alliance for Jewish safety and to end anti-Semitism and kind of also to build deeper roots between the various parts of the Jewish community in New York stop in their tracks, all of those efforts. And I also want to echo what Isabel said and Yehuda, what you said that just like in Israel, the ultra-Orthodox community in New York is far from monolithic. It's really best spoken of as a spectrum of communities. So we can slap one label on all of them, but really they have very different behaviors and reactions to all these different things, both within the communities and between them. I've learned not to predict anything <laughs> in New York or regarding the Jewish people or, or really anything. But I think those who are invested in that kind of communal unity are going to have to start from scratch when it comes to this and not only go back to where they were last January or even two Decembers ago, 
but we'll have to work on a lot of the damage that was done there over the course of 2020 when those street rallies were happening, street protests really were happening in Brooklyn and there were masks being burned in the street and Hashi Tischler, who's a local demagogue, was kind of coming out and riling up the crowd. And the crowd actually kind of went at two journalists who were trying to document it. I spoke to Jewish leaders in New York that are outside of those communities and within them about this. And there was a lot of embarrassment and a lot of tension and feeling about like, where do we go from here? And by the way, I want to plug my colleague Shira Hanau, who's done fantastic reporting on everything I just talked about for several months. So everyone should read her work to get a kind of deeper look at that. But yeah, I mean, in terms of anything that affects the entire Jewish community, just speaking about New York, whether it's measures against anti-Semitism or any other kind of policy that we see as serving the entire varied community's interest. I don't really see a lot of conversation happening, and I don't see a lot of conversation past the point of recriminations about everything that's happened over the course of the past year. So I'm not sure where that's going to go. My sense is that we're going to have to kind of get past COVID or at least get past concerns about rising infections to even have those conversations. But, you know, we'll see what happens over the next few months as vaccines spread. Yeah, and I'm curious in Israel, Isabel, but maybe you could go even beyond the Haredi community. And it references back to the fact that Israel is in an election phase now. What are the consequences of both behaviors around pandemic and behaviors now around vaccine for the re-knitting together, if such a thing is possible, of Israeli society across differences. There's the political angle of this, you know, is Netanyahu actually benefiting from this? But there's also a whole bunch of social questions that emerge from the pandemic when people see Arabs and Haredim with different rates than their own. And then does the vaccine kind of heal all those ills? Yeah, look, it's a huge question and a great question. And I think, as Ben says, we're not going to know all the answers for a while till the dust settles. But yeah, this pandemic has really underscored the fault lines, I would say, in Israeli society, running through the society. And it's a mixed bag because if we just go back a few months, Israel was waiting for a projector, a corona czar to be appointed when one finally was, Ronnie Gamzu, uh, everyone thought, oh, this was going to be our salvation. And the undoing of Ronnie Gamzu was actually the politics and the politicization of the response to the pandemic. Because what happened was he had this traffic light system planned where you could not exactly put a wall up around Bnei Brak, but you would certainly bring in tighter restrictions in places where the epidemic was raging and allow other places that were green to carry on with more normal life. And this proved absolutely impossible for political reasons. Netanyahu needs his Haredi ultra-Orthodox coalition partners now more than ever. They're the only people still sticking with him. And there was no way they were going to allow this to happen. They said over our dead bodies, if there's a lockdown on Bnei Brak, there's a lockdown on the whole country. So what happened was there was a lockdown on the whole country. And we've seen this repeated again and again. So, you know, on the one hand, I think this whole pandemic has highlighted the question of what's going on here. I mean, is this essentially a ultra-Orthodox autonomy with a law unto itself, where the education system remains open when everyone else's is closed down, even though 
the infection rates there are 40% higher than anywhere else. I mean, it's raised a lot of questions. But at the same time, it's had a huge other impact where many ultra-Orthodox are connecting to the internet for the first time because they want to be informed or need to work remotely or need some kind of contact with the outside world when they're under lockdown for weeks on end in a small apartment. So it's a mixed bag. But I think politically, it's huge. On the one hand, more Israelis have died from COVID than all of Israel's wars put together. And nobody here can dismiss the fact that this was handled very badly for a long time here, largely because of that politicization. And the person responsible for that is the prime minister. And yet he's now, of course, taken on very early on the vaccine program as a personal project and deserves credit for getting it going so early and for how it's going. And he's now obviously campaigning on that and trying to capitalize on that. Finally, this week, he actually replaced his Twitter banner, which was still up to, I think, Tuesday or Wednesday this week, him and Trump, and finally replaced it with a photo of himself getting his vaccine. So we can see how important this is now become. But yeah, he's definitely campaigning on the fact that this tantalizing prospect of Israel becoming the first fully vaccinated country, a light unto nations as a result, and that Israelis will get back to normal life quicker than anywhere else, and he'll be able to get the economy back on track. So it's really a bit of a roller coaster, and how it plays out in March, we'll see. But, you know, just so happens that we have our fourth election on the 23rd of March, and it just so happens that we're supposed to be fully vaccinated by the 20-something of March. So What a coincidence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> say no more. <laughs> Isabel, I actually wanted to ask you, because something that struck me about all of this is that Netanyahu's pitch in the past cycle of elections a year or two ago was you know, that he's in another league, that he has all these relationships with world leaders, many of them on the nationalist right, but around the world, right? Trump and Putin and Modi and everything. And I wonder, do you see the way he's talking about vaccine distribution as kind of a continuation of that? You know, where he's talking to the CEO of Pfizer, he's talking to the CEO of Moderna, it's these relationships. Is that all of a piece and is that part of his campaign, do you feel like? It will be. I mean, yeah, that notion of who else could have pulled this off? Who else can speak to the CEO of Pfizer at two in the morning and have 17 calls with him in the last two weeks? You know, So, yeah, there is an element of that. Of everybody else is a dwarf compared to me in terms of their ability to pick up the phone. And, you know, to be honest, there is something to be said for that. He's been in power consecutively since 2009 and three years in the 90s. He's surpassed Ben-Gurion as the longest serving prime minister. He does have a kind of outsized stature internationally for a small country. And yes, I mean, you're right. I think this incredible vaccine story is just going to be feeding into that aura of being in a different league. My colleague, Jessica Kleinalevi, wrote about this. The two Netanyahus are best encapsulated by this, both the election drama, the turmoil, the corruption, all of this, and the story of the vaccination and his enduring popularity among the Israeli public for being the person who can basically get it done and keep Israelis safe. 
just that mythology that gets augmented here. I want to make sure we do speak at least briefly about this subplot of the Israeli vaccination story, which is the Palestinian non-vaccination story. It's been reported in wildly different ways about whether Palestinian leadership wanted Israel to provide them with the vaccine or whether the PA leadership did not want Israel to provide them. That has to do with interpretations of the Oslo Accords. So Isabel, if you could give us like a two-minute explainer of what's taking place around this right now. It's interesting also, by the way, that the B'Tselem report comes out this week also, declaring Israel to be an apartheid regime. It couldn't be more perfect. Right, I will try in two minutes. This is the dark flip side of the vaccine success story. And it's not all black and white. And things have changed in the last few weeks. So when some officials or some opinion columnists or whatever say, well, the Palestinians never asked, That might have been true a few weeks ago. It might not be true this week. And if you speak to Palestinian officials, you're likely to get different stories from different officials, either because they don't know or there isn't one firm position or things have changed since they got the last memo. So it's not very clear cut. But what I can say is there are two sets of values here. One is the issue of obligations under Oslo Accords international law, and the other is interest. If we look at the obligations of Israel, yes, under the Oslo Accords, the Palestinian Authority has responsibility for its own health system and vaccination programs in normal times. But yes, there is a clause in an annex of the Oslo Accords that also says at a time of emergency or a pandemic that the sides must cooperate and do all they can to help to contain a pandemic. And that can certainly be interpreted as meaning, well, obviously Israel must help. Israel has all these millions of doses. Why isn't it helping? The international Geneva Conventions also state that the occupying power has responsibility for the occupied people. And then there's the whole question of, well, do you consider it an occupation or not? I mean, the the Likud does not consider this an occupation. But, you know, there is nothing that says in any of these documents, there is nothing that says if you have the vaccines and the Palestinians don't, then you have to give the Palestinians vaccines in parallel to your own citizens or before your own citizens or only after your own citizens. You know, that kind of resolution and that granular detail obviously is not there. So it allows for some kind of interpretation. When you look at Israel's interests, yes, I mean, Israel's interests would be to have everyone between the river and the sea vaccinated because pandemics don't recognize boundaries, borders or fences or walls. And we do have tens of thousands of Palestinians who cross the 67 line every day to come to work here. If they're not doing that, they're suffering economically, which is also not in anybody's interest. So there are a lot of other areas here of interest beyond just law or goodwill. And I think the bottom line is that, you know, Israel's, you hear some officials saying it's not our responsibility. The Palestinian Authority at the beginning was trying to air certainly an impression of independence. Hey, we've got this. We're in touch on our own with the companies and we're going to handle this because it was a matter of pride and they didn't want to look like they were quote-unquote, begging Israel for vaccines. As it turns out, 
Israel apparently did receive a request from the Palestinians for 10,000 vaccines for health workers. Some Palestinian officials say that request was turned down. Others say they didn't get a reply. Israel does secretly seem to have transferred a few dozen, maybe a hundred vaccines for some very essential frontline health workers, which the PA obviously didn't want advertised. So it's a very mixed bag. I think it's been complicated by the fact that, yes, we do have this situation where, you know, Jewish settlers living in the West Bank or Judea and Samaria, however people want to refer to it, in settlements are eligible and getting vaccinated and the Palestinians in the village next door are basically not. Anyway, by now the PA says it has reached some agreements with getting Sputnik and also the Oxford AstraZeneca They will be apparently arriving probably in February or March. And one other thing that I'd throw out is that, you know, there are logistical issues as well because Israel is using Pfizer at the moment. Israel's big supplies are all from Pfizer. And the PA does not have the logistical capability at this point. I mean, it might be able to get some with help, but right now it doesn't have that kind of ability for that cold chain transport of the vaccine so what are you going to have Israeli army fridges coming into Ramallah I don't know Um, but there's a logistical issue as well which is why the PA hasn't been trying to get the Pfizer vaccine yeah part of me irrationally wants to blame Pfizer a little bit because Pfizer's interest in being able to use an entire region to be able to do this study you know, it's not my $350 million, but it would have been interesting for Pfizer to basically make some of the terms of this. We're going to actually vaccinate the entire population between the river and the sea, but that's just speculation. Uh, ben, maybe give us the flip side of this, which is what are you seeing, if anything, already, since I know you cover the anti-Semitism beat and the anti-Israel beat, but what do you see as some of the fallout, especially for the reputation of the state of Israel as a result of this Palestinian story? It's a coincidence that the Petzalem report comes out this week, but it feels to me a little bit ominous in terms of how the great story of Israel's vaccination process is going to be read by critics of Israel compared to the failure to vaccinate or to take care of the Palestinian population. Yeah, we talked about the Gidon Levy quote earlier. Obviously, he's a very strident critic of Israel. And he said, I got to hand it to you. I'm seeing less of that kind of externally. Something I think, you know, you talk about a lot also, Yehuda, is the conversation about Israel outside of Israel, right? And to a certain extent, something especially I found after living there and coming back is that a lot of it both for Israelis and Palestinians, is kind of divorced from what's happening on the ground there. So, Isabel, you spoke about interests and kind of how the situation is more complex. The discourse, for example, between activists on Twitter is not complex, right? You know, I think people are kind of falling into their camps here, where you see critics and anti-Israel activists talking about the Geneva Conventions, the things that you spoke about, the legitimate, actual kind of principles you spoke about. But it doesn't really go beyond that. And on the other side as well, you know, oh, well, the Palestinians never ask. And then that's kind of the end of the story. On Twitter, I'm saying, is that the actual end? So that's kind of what I'm saying. And it goes beyond Twitter and in op-eds and, and open letters and, and everything like that. And the apartheid report that Petzalem put out obviously goes well beyond this one issue. I think it's notable that Petzalem put out the report because it is a Jewish-Israeli-led human rights organization as opposed to one coming from the Palestinian perspective. But it might change minds in the international arena. Among the people that are kind of already discoursing on this issue, I'm not sure I'm seeing how many minds it's changing on that. 
I want to come back to one thing I was talking about earlier that's disconnected from this, if I will, just to add something. I just want to add that just like there was a lot of upset among non-ultra-Orthodox Jews toward what they saw going on in Brooklyn, there was a lot of also frustration I was hearing in Brooklyn about you claim to be against anti-Semitism and then all these things are happening to us and the government is discriminating against us and you don't have our backs. And so that's going on. And if I can kind of tie the circle back in an indirect way to what we were just talking about, I feel like the same thing is happening in the discourse on Israelis and Palestinians where Isabel, I love how you laid out all the factors in this puzzle of international principles and agreements and interests. And unfortunately, that nuance and that kind of texture and complexity is missing, unfortunately, in a lot of the discourse here. Absolutely. I mean, that's partly why, you know, maybe took a bit more than two minutes to just unpack some of the complexity, (laughs) because we're ranging from the defenders of Israel saying this is a terrible blood libel against the Jews, saying that they're refusing to vaccinate the Palestinians, and across to the other end of the spectrum of this is medical apartheid. And there's a very grey middle there. But yes, on Twitter, I just got after one of my stories about how Israel's vaccination campaign was going so well, I predictably was at the other end of a troll campaign of thousands of tweets saying it's medical apartheid and you've ignored this and you've ignored that. I think 90% of the people had not read the story, which also did actually address the Palestinian issue. But one of the tweets that kept repeating itself was your horrible racist apartheid countries refusing to vaccinate Palestinian prisoners. Well, yes, Amir Ohana, there was a headline saying somewhere that he was refusing. But it was a very complicated story. What happened was Amir Ohana, our justice minister, has been refusing to vaccinate any prisoners in a kind of power struggle with the attorney general. He was claiming that until all the prison guards have been vaccinated, no prisoners should be vaccinated. And it wasn't singling out the Palestinian prisoners. It was all the prisoners in Israel. And in fact, a Palestinian official had spoken somewhere on, I think, Voice of Palestine radio or somewhere and said, oh, the Palestinian security prisoners are going to get vaccinated within the next couple of weeks. And he then denied that as part of his no prisoners are getting the vaccine yet. And that denial became a your justice minister is refusing to vaccinate Palestinian prisoners. So this is how things get misconstrued and simplified and twitterfied. Well, if anything is an argument for the importance of well-reported, serious journalism, of long-form writing, of non-Twitter, certainly the pandemic is a piece of that in this conversation as well. And it's just striking also to me that what we will one day look back on is You know, when you take a philosophy 101 class in college, then things like the trolley problem try to make moral decision making, prioritizing this piece of the population versus the other into an exercise that can be answered in a 90 minute exam. But the reality is all of the dynamics that you've both helped to tease out about social behavior, geography, borders, international pressure, political pressure, all of these make for not a 90 minute answer and certainly not anything shorter than that. And for better or worse, the complexity of what this story is unfolding for us tells us, I think, a more accurate and a more human story about these challenges. I have much more to ask you about, but we are out of time. So 
Thank you very much to Isabel Kirshner of the New York Times, Ben Sales of JTA, and thanks to all of you for listening to our show. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. It was produced this week by David Svi Kalman and Alex Dillon and edited by Alex Dillon with assistance from Miri Miller and music by So Called. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, you can visit us online, shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about this show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover the show. And you can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to Identity Crisis in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and thank you for listening. Thank you.